Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9. Matthew's recording the life of Jesus Christ. And he records Jesus giving his great sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 and chapter 6. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' description of the kingdom of God. So when you read the Sermon on the Mount, I want you to read it and understand that it's his Magna Carta. It's his constitution. It's his description of the kingdom of God. And as he, re- as he speaks about his kingdom, he tells you what kind of people are going to be in it. Humble, blessed are the humble, blessed are the poor in spirit. What kind of people are going to be in it? What kind of lives they're going to live? Who they're going to trust? And what the kingdom is going to be like in its relationship to the world around it? Peacemakers. So as you read, as you read the Sermon on the Mount, I want you next time you read it to think of it not as a series of nice thoughts or little sermonettes, but Jesus' description of his kingdom. This is what the kingdom of God is like. Now, having done that, what we all want to know is, what does that look like? You know, on a Monday morning or on a Tuesday, what does it look like? We have a prime minister, and he's got all sorts of ideas. And he comes up with new policies, and they're going to do new projects, and they're going to do new ideas. And you go, yeah, okay, let's see what it looks like on Monday morning. Let's see if, if it actually stands up to scrutiny. And so that's what Matthew does. He has this great sermon, this great constitution, this great description of the kingdom. And then he shows you the king working out his kingdom. And the kind of people he meets, are they the poor in spirit? Are they the humble? And that's what we see as he goes through Matthew. And that's what we're looking at. So when we get to Matthew chapter 9, Matthew is showing us the kingdom growing, and the kind of people in it. Now in those verses that I read in Matthew 9, I want to look at, there are four, I'm going to call them four groups, but they're not four groups, it's two men and, and then two groups of people. But there's, there's, there's four groups of people I want, I want to look at. They split in, they're separated into two groups. Those who trust Jesus Christ, And those who reject Jesus Christ. And that's what I want to look at this morning. But first of all, let me start with Jesus is the one from whom nothing is hidden. You cannot hide anything from Jesus. They couldn't hide anything when he was alive and with them. And you can't hide anything now. It's a rather frightening thought in one way. But it's also a very encouraging thought in another. It's a frightening thought in that Jesus knows everything I ever think and do and desire. And that's kind of frightening. But then it's encouraging in that though Jesus knows everything I do and think and desire, he still says to me, I love you. Come to me. That's a very powerful thought, isn't it? He knows me and he wants me knowing me through and through. If you knew every desire and thought that I've ever had, 
you would not be sitting so close. <laughs> you would be somewhere else. And you certainly wouldn't have me in the pulpit. Jesus knows every thought and every desire that you've ever had, that you are having, that you ever will have. And he says, come to me. I want to be with you. I want to be near you. We see this here, verse 2 of chapter 9. Jesus sees their faith. He sees their faith. Sometimes uh, people don't see our faith. Sometimes our faith is well hidden. Sometimes our faith is very small. Very small. But Jesus sees it. He sees our faith. Jesus saw a man called Matthew, who's sitting at the tax collector's seat, he saw him. He knew him. He knew everything about him. He physically saw him, but he saw deep inside him. We'll see this in a minute. We're also told in verse 4 that people came accusing Jesus and he knew their hearts. So he wasn't just looking at the words that were coming out their mouths. He was looking at the hearts behind the words. They came pretending to be very holy. They came saying, well, how can anyone forgive sin? They came pretending to be very holy, but he saw their hearts. And while they could pretend to be holy, he knew behind them, behind their hearts, was evil. We can pretend to be holy, and behind our holy thoughts are evil desires and evil wishes for people. Jesus knows it. He sees it. And then he sees right through every part of our lives. Nothing, nothing is hidden from Jesus. Nothing is hidden from Jesus. Jesus looks at us. There's also a little account here at the, uh, in verse 12 because I was wondering why it was in my notes, so I had to look, where some people approached Jesus' disciples. They didn't approach Jesus, and they said to Jesus' disciples, why is he eating? And, and it, was a, it was a nasty question, you know. It was, it was, why is he eating with sin sinners? And while they didn't speak to Jesus, Jesus heard it. Jesus heard it. Jesus knows everything. It's said that you can fool some of the people some of the time, but not all of the people all of the time. But you can never fool Jesus any of the time. He sees us and knows us through and through. So the question arises, where does Jesus find you today? Where does he find you today? The real you. Not, not the presenting you. The real you. Where does he find you today? He knows your name. He knows what part of this earth you're inhabiting. He knows your faith or your lack of it. He knows where you are in relation to God. Whether you're walking and seeking God or running away from him or denying him. He knows you. He knows if your religion, as you come in today, the songs you sing, the prayers you say amen to and the words you say, he knows if they're true or if they're false. He knows it. You can hide it from me. You can hide it from everyone else. 
but you can't hide it from him. He knows you. He knows your intentions and he knows your actions and the desires behind your actions. He knows everything. It's frightening, but it's also encouraging. Because despite knowing everything about you, he still says, come, come. Come as you are. Come to me and I'll do something special in your life. Now, that's my first point. My second point is the healing of body and soul. And we're dealing with two men here. Okay? Matthew records the healing of two men. The first one that, that's recorded by Matthew is in verse 9. And Jesus has been across on the other side of the lake. And he crosses to Capernaum, which is where his, his home is. He's made his home in Capernaum. And he's now in Capernaum. Capernaum's a, a reasonable-sized fishing village. It's quite prosperous. Uh, they have uh, boating fleets. We know that there are boating fleets because Peter and Andrew, uh, have, their father has a boating fleet there. And we know that, that Peter and his brothers and cousins used to go fishing from, from Capernaum. So we know, we know it's a good center. We know that there, are, that there are Romans there, garrison there, or place there. We know it's a place of of uh, authority because there are tax collectors there. We, we, so it's a, it's a busy town. It's a busy town. So Jesus gets back to this busy town. Matthew tells us that a man is brought to him who is paralyzed. Interestingly, Matthew doesn't tell what, what everyone else tells you. It was that his mates brought him and couldn't get into the house. So they went on the roof and opened it up and dropped him down through the roof into the front room. Matthew doesn't tell you that, but this is who this man is. Matthew's not interested in that at this point. It's not important to him. It's not important that, that that's who this man was. I think it's Mark records uh, that, that he was dropped through the roof by his friends. What Matthew records is this man's need. Okay? He's brought by friends, he records. A man is brought by friends. He's paralyzed. He's lying on a mat. He's brought by friends. He is obviously physically ill. It's obvious to everyone. He's lying on a mat. He doesn't get off it. If you find someone who's lying on a mat and doesn't get off that mat, they are really ill, aren't they? You know, they're not a little bit ill. They are really ill. And if they're paralyzed, they're really, really, really ill. So Matthew says, it's obvious to everyone that this man is sick. Matthew also indicates that this part of the reason that this man is in the condition he is, is because of his heart, his walk with God. The first thing Jesus says to this man is, don't worry, son. Your sins are forgiven you. That's the first thing Jesus says. Take heart, son. Your sins are forgiving you. What we also know is his friends and this man believe that Jesus can do something for him. That's why they bring him. That's why the man comes. And so there we are, confronted by a man so obviously ill. 
And they're so desperate that they come and they believe that Jesus can do something because they've heard that he's done it before and he can do it again, surely. And they think, maybe he can do it for our friend. And the man who's paralyzed, maybe they can do it for me. Maybe he can do it for me. Because Jesus says to that young man, and I'm guessing he's young, son, so that's why I think he's young, yeah? Because Jesus is in his 30s. Son, son, your sins are forgiven you. You know, sometimes our sins make us physically sick. Do you know that? I'm not saying that everyone who's physically sick is physically sick because of their sin. I'm not saying that. But what I am saying is that sometimes we are sick because we're spiritually not right with God. And to back that up, I go to Corinthians, to the communion table. And there's a warning at the communion table, isn't there? Do not take of this in a careless manner not recognizing the body and blood of Christ. Because some people do that, some are sick and well, and some are asleep, which most people think means they've died. So sometimes, not every occasion, but it seems to me with this man, this is the condition. Because Jesus first and foremost says, son, take heart, not you're going to get up and walk. Your sins are forgiven you. Let's get to the root of your problem. Let's get to the root of your problem. But we also know that, that when we have unforgiven sins, it affects us. It affects our body. King David, he says, when one of his, I'm paraphrasing here. You have to look it up. He says, when I didn't confess my sins, it was like my bones went old became old. They groaned in me. I physically manifested my spiritual failures, my unconfessed sins. I just ask you, consider, doesn't always happen, but on this occasion, it seems to, and it's really obvious. And Jesus says, you've come to me in faith. I forgive you. You're healed. Is that easy? Well, not really. Because he, he could only say it by taking that man's sin and bearing its penalty. But as one who took that man's sin and bore its penalty, he said, you're forgiven. You can be forgiven. Your life may be like this man's where your sin is obvious. And it's obvious to all and your life is broken and we meet a lot of people like this, don't we? And, and sin is destroying their lives. It's destroying their bodies. It's destroying their minds. It's destroying their relationships. They may not be paralyzed, but they're broken as broken can be. You come to Jesus. Put your faith in him. Confess that you cannot fix yourself. It's beyond you. Acknowledge that only he can fix you. Your sins are forgiven you. 
If you're a Christian, you've heard those words. Take heart, my son, my daughter. Your sins are forgiven you. And what a day that was, wasn't it? That day when we realized our sins were forgiven. Do you remember that day? Do you remember that day when the burden was lifted? Do you remember that day when, when finally John Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, that, that wonderful book where he describes someone's life as a journey. And there's Bunyan and he's got this terrible weight on his shoulders and he's carrying this weight and he's carrying this weight and it's dragging him down. And he gets to the cross and he looks at Jesus and he trusts and the weight came off. Do you remember that day when you understood what that meant? When the burdens of this world and the burdens of your sin were lifted and Jesus Christ came in and said, take heart, take heart. So that's him. Maybe you're like that man. Now the second man is interesting. Again, this is intriguing. It intrigues me because Matthew puts himself into the story. So as he's telling the story of Jesus, he says, let me tell you about me. I'm in here. It's not time. It's not. Matthew became a Christian before the man who was paralyzed was healed. But when he's telling the story, he puts himself in it with this man. And when he thinks about that man, he says, he writes down, let me tell you about me. He's also known as Levi. If you look for him in the Bible, he's, he's got two names, Matthew and Levi, you know. So he's also known as Levi. And you read about Levi's conversion, how Levi came to Christ. And he says, look, this is me. He says, I was in Capernaum. And there I was, and, and he speaks about how he was in Capernaum. He speaks about how he was a tax collector. He came, he saw a man called Matthew. It's me. I, let me tell you about me. I'm here. I'm here. Now, I was sat at the tax collector's booth. I was sat there at the tax collector's booth. And there I was. And, and I was surrounded by all the things of life and the busyness of life. And Jesus came and he said to me, follow me. And I got up and I went. That's my story. Well, that's intriguing. Do you not find that fascinating? Just think about it for a moment. There's Matthew. What can we say about him? Well, he can write and he can read and he can do maths. Okay? So he's ahead of a lot of people, isn't he? Yeah? He can read and write, he can do maths. He's got a good job. He's got a job that pays well. It pays well. And he's doing well at it because he's there in a prominent place and he's taking taxes and his job is going really well. I suspect if you walked past him, you know, if you'd walked past him, if you knew him, you would have gone, he's got a brilliant future. He's going to do really well. He's got a lovely house. We know he's got a good house because he invites all his mates to his house and they all have a big party. So he's not, he's not living in a little hovel, is he? He's living in a decent house. I suspect a young man with a good job and a good house, I suspect he may have had a wife. 
he'd have had servants. He's doing really well. I suspect if you'd walked past him, you would have thought, he's doing really well. But he's not. He is so unhappy. He is so unhappy that when Jesus comes and says to him, follow me, come and follow me, he leaves his job behind. Quite a few of us at times in our lives have wanted, have been so unhappy, we wanted to leave our jobs behind, haven't we? You know? He's that unhappy. Money isn't doing it for him. Wealth isn't doing it for him. He puts himself with a sick man. So physically he may be doing okay and even really well. But he's heart sick. He's heart sick. He's desperate for more than money and prestige can give him. He's heart sick. And you'll find people like that. And this is an encouragement for you. Don't think you know where anyone is. Don't think you understand them. Don't, 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 imagine, don't imagine that you really know where someone is. People can hide their true self. They can deeply hide it. They can hide it behind success and money and wealth. And they can put nice smiles on their faces and wear nice clothes and wash well. And you think they've got it all together. But not everyone does. And you may find that you say to someone, Jesus Christ can answer your heart's deepest desires. And they may well say to you, that's what I need. Because nothing else is doing it. I'm amazed. He got up, didn't he? He left his table. He left his job. And he went and followed Jesus. He, he didn't go back. He went and followed Jesus. Is that amazing? Maybe that was you. Maybe you had hidden your life and hidden, hidden the, your true state. You, you'd hidden your, your unhappiness in your deepest heart's desires. You'd put on a good game face, but actually you were broken. Maybe that's your testimony. Jesus could see through it. And he said, come and follow me. Well, Jesus can still see through it. And he still says, come and follow me. And then he brought all his friends. And he said, like I suspect, come see a man. Come see a man. Come hear his words. You all look like you're doing well. But are you really? Come and hear. Come and see. Those men were forgiven. Those men were right with God. Those men went on. And certainly one of them became one of the most important church leaders in the history of the world. One of the 12 disciples. So you have them. Now the other side. And quickly, I'll go a bit quickly. These are the ones whose hope is misplaced. All right. One has healing of body and soul and mind. And the other lot, their hope is misplaced. And we see them here. The first group, let me speak to you about the first group. The first group are teachers. The teachers of the law, verse 3. They're religious leaders 
they, uh, they've studied the Bible. They know the Bible. They know how to apply it. They've, they've given it many years of their life. It's what they talk about every day. They are the kind of people who can spot a heresy at 100 miles, you know. Any whiff, any little, you know, a little, some, some little piece of theology out of place, some little heresy, oh, they can spot it a mile away. And so as Jesus is speaking and he turns and he says to this man, your sins are forgiven you, they go, hold on, hold on. My theology tells me that only God can forgive. And they're right. They're right. Jesus acknowledges that. Jesus acknowledges that their theology is correct. Only God can forgive. But then he says to them, well, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk. Only God can heal like this. Get up, go home. And so the man got up and he went home. Now they've got a problem. Now they've got a problem. Because Jesus is making a very clear claim. I'm God. I'm God. And he's proving it by getting the man to get up and go home. Do they believe? No. They just stick to their theology. They blinker everything else out of the way. They just stick to those things that they understand. This fellow is blaspheming. Well, he's only blaspheming if he's not the son of God. Why do you entertain evil thoughts, he says. They know the book, they know the theology, but they don't know the one that it describes. There's lots of people like that. You know, they, 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 they know theology, they read books, they understand things, they read the Bible. It's the Bible and understand it, but they've never met Jesus. They just have a book and a series of ideas and thoughts and principles. And you find them in churches, and you find them in theological colleges, and you find them in universities. They don't know Jesus. They know the book, but they don't know the one the book describes. And you find them in churches. Do you know Jesus? I'm not saying, do you know your Bible? I'm not asking that question. I'm not saying, do you understand it? Do you understand how it all fits together and how all the pieces come together? I'm not asking that. I'm asking, do you know Jesus? Do you know him? That's the most important thing. You start with him, then everything else makes sense. And you trust him, then everything else makes sense. So they had so much, and they believed that their knowledge of God's word somehow makes them special. But they don't put their faith into the object of God's word, Jesus Christ. How sad. How sad. And then there's another group, the final group I'm just thinking about this morning. The second group are the Pharisees. Now the Pharisees, well, they, they had a legal understanding, yes. But um, their, their lives were very ordered. They were very devout. They were... Um, the Franciscan monks of the day, if you, if you know what I mean. They, they kind of ordered their lives. Every part of their life was in order and, 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 and they, they, they made sure that everything was just, just so, just perfect. And they emphasized 
practical holiness. So, the, 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 the lawyers didn't. They were pretty reprobate. But the Pharisees, they, they, they wanted practical holiness. And so they come and they spot a compromise. Their, their ability is to spot a compromise. Okay? So if the first one's ability is to spot a heresy, this lot, they can spot compromise. Uh, they would have said, as I heard, once heard a preacher say, I, I don't spit and swear and chew and I don't hang around with those who do. Okay? That would have been their mantra. Yeah? I don't spit and swear and chew and I don't hang around with those who do. That's their thinking. I'm holy. I'm holy. So when they see Jesus sat with tax collectors, they, they, they go, well, what's he doing? Why is he mixing with these people? Why is he compromising? Because they always associated mixing with people with compromising. They know how to build walls and boundaries around their lives. They can tell you who's in and who's out. Have you met these people? They know who's in and they know who's out. They know where the boundaries are. They know what you should do and what you shouldn't do. They have a list. They've checked it a few times. They've added to it. You rarely subtract. Usually keep adding. All, these are all the right people and this is all the right places and this is all this is what you must do and, and here and we know who's in and we know who's out. And they say Jesus is out. He's not in. Jesus says, I've come for the sick, not the healthy. But he also said this, which is very telling. God desires mercy rather than sacrifice. Now, that's a challenging thing. God puts mercy first. You may, you may go through all kinds of hardship and all sorts of difficulty to try and lead a holy life. But if you're not merciful, it's not godly. And Jesus doesn't compromise. Jesus is more than capable of being amongst people and not compromising with them. He's capable of lifting them up without himself being dragged down. I wish it was true of me. I tend to be dragged down by body. By, but he doesn't. And he tells us he's given us his spirit. So that by our presence, so I'm asking the question, do we meet with people who need Jesus? Do we, need, do we show them mercy? Or are we more interested in our little narrow box and staying in it? Jesus, well, sacrifice is important, yes. And we have to lay down our lives before God, yes. But he's not really talking about that, is he? He's talking about those sacrifices that make you look good and others look bad. Cross over the line, he says. Show mercy. Bring them to me. I like Matthew. I like Matthew. He meets Jesus and then he brings all his mates. Isn't that wonderful? And Jesus says, yes, I'll come. I'll come to your party and I'll meet your mates because I know where they are.